0: Because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are. And we have to articulate ourselves. Otherwise, we would be cows in the field.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a movie podcast where we explore the philosophical themes Embedded in popular films. My name is Justin. And I'm Laura. Today we're talking about Terry Gilliam's wild time travel opus, Twelve Monkeys. And we're delighted to be joined today by Barry Lamb, a professor of philosophy at Vassar College and the host of the podcast Hi-Fi Nation, a show that weaves philosophical ideas into engaging narrative storytelling. Welcome, Barry.
0: I'm so happy to be here. Big fan. I listen to the show.
1: Oh, thank you very much. Of course, we are big fans of yours. And I should just say to the listeners, if you haven't listened to Hi-Fi Nation, go check it out. If you like philosophy, it's the best philosophy podcast out there. It basically, imagine this American life meets a philosophy, I don't know, I guess a philosophy lecture in a way. Um, and it's a dialogue, it's a story. Um, it's amazing. And the most recent uh, mini series is on the philosophy of David Lewis, someone we're going to talk uh, at length about today. So go check it out, listeners.
0: Absolutely. On all of your podcatchers.
1: Yes. <laughs> so, we are, okay, so we're today talking about 12 Monkeys. Now, this is a movie by Terry Gilliam, as I said, 1995 movie. It, some of our audience might not know what this movie is. So, because as Laura was telling me, she was talking to her sister today, and she and she's like, yeah, we're recording an episode on 12 Monkeys. And, and her sister was like, what? What's that movie? <laughs> like, there is a lot of people who I think may not have seen this movie. And so, we want to start today... If somebody pushed play in there, they want to know, man, should I check this movie out? What would be your spoiler-free pitch for the movie? I want to start with Laura on this one. I have a feeling and she's she's prepared something here. So uh, give us <laughs> oh a 10-second spoiler-free pitch of the it's movie. It's
2: not a serious one. Yeah, it's okay. Um, all right, well... I'll just have some questions, as I often do in my pitches. Do you want to watch Brad Pitt rail against capitalism, but instead of a six pack in another movie you might have seen him rail against capitalism, he has like kind of like a violent twitch and like a and like a a, a funny eye? <laughs> yeah. Uh, or do you like time travel, but you tried to watch Primer and it melted your brain and you weren't ready for it?
3: Mm. Or yeah,
2: do you wish movie scores had more accordion? Because I do. I wish more movie scores always had more accordion. <laughs> the score rocks.
1: It does rock. Also, good pitch. <laughs> primer for primer. It's a primer, primer for primer. primer. If I you're think that's not a, ready, if you yeah. need some
2: more foundation in your time travel st- studies, this is a good one to that's start awesome.
1: with. That's uh, awesome. Barry, do you have a f- pitch for us for the movie?
0: Uh, it is a time travel movie that will make sense mm. <laughs> in, a, in a way that you're not going to come away with it thoroughly confused about what happened and whether this was possible or not possible. And that's very hard in time travel movies. There's a lot of time travel movies that you come away and you start thinking, wait, if they did that in the past, but then the future was like this. I mean, like the Avengers, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like MCU. They, You know, there was one of those things where, well, if they did that in the past, then, you know, Thanos would have died and he wouldn't have gotten rid of... You don't have that in 12 Monkeys. Yeah. So 12 Monkeys is one of these... Um, time travel movies which is fully coherent consistent no plot holes and the other thing about it is that you have both a um, post-apocalyptic earth and a pre-apocalyptic earth and the post-apocalyptic earth is the result of a pandemic and we're Mm -hmm. in a pandemic (laughs) so (laughs) so i it's um it's it's timely Yes, that's right. Yeah, I don't
2: think we we hadn't watched it post COVID. And it does no. feel like, you know, when he's suiting up yeah. and, and getting sprayed down and disinfected, and I'm looking over at Justin like, that's you going to the grocery yeah. store. Yeah, no,
1: <laughs> that was me uh, in the <laughs> beginnings of the pandemic getting ready to go to the grocery store. Um, that's great. I like both of these pictures. I mean, the only thing I will add is that it's a time travel movie, as Barry said. Um, but what I think is interesting is as far as time travel movies go, it's Interested in the human toll of time travel in a way that I think a lot of other time travel movies don't deal with, and it deals with the human toll in a really, really interesting way, connecting it up to uh madness and insanity. So, there you have it three pitches to watch 12 Monkeys, and I think all of us would give this movie a thumbs up, is that right? Oh, yeah,
0: for sure. Yeah, it's a classic,
1: classic, exactly. So, go check it out. Okay, so let's, so since this is a time travel movie, let's talk a little bit about the philosophy of time travel. And part of the reason we wanted to do this was because, as I mentioned, uh, Hi-Fi Nation is doing a miniseries on David Lewis, and David Lewis had a very famous paper about time travel. So Barry, given that you are now, like, having done all this Lewis research, and expert on Lewis's views of time travel, let's talk a little bit about what David Lewis thought about time travel. Like, how did he think it was possible? What picture of time did Lewis like?
0: Well, David Lewis thought about a lot of philosophical issues by thinking about time travel. In fact, he taught at Princeton. The class he taught on metaphysics began and ended with philosophical issues in time travel. So he got into philosophy because of time travel. And I discovered it went back to his days as a wannabe scientist, and he was interested in science fiction, and so a lot of um, reading science fiction informed his philosophy. Um, the paradoxes of time travel, which came out, I believe, in 1974-ish or something to that effect, is are his solutions to the various um, paradoxes, like the grandfather paradox, which is whether you can go back in time, uh, change the past in such a way as to affect the future, um, Things like that, and so the the one of the there's a lot of tenets in that paper about how to make uh, what time has to be like in order for time travel to be possible. Um, Lewis took it took it for granted that time travel had to be possible, if not technologically possible, just possible. Like there is a world in which people are time traveling. That has to be true for him. And the task of philosophers who know a lot more about this than I do about time travel is what must time be like so that time travel is possible? And for David Lewis, um, what time would be like is exactly as depicted in the movie like 12 Monkeys, right? Um, 12 Monkeys is a quintessentially Lewisian time travel movie in that, number one, if things have happened in the past, they cannot unhappen, they ha- they just have to happen. <laughs> um, so if things happen in the past, they have happened. If things that happened in your past happened, then they have happened in your past. You cannot make it so that they have not happened in your past. If you had traveled to the past, that was already in your past. So so, it, so even though it's in your future that you will travel in the past, it, was, it already happened in the past that you were there. And everything about that is um, depicted in 12 Monkeys quite well. Yeah. Actually,
1: I mean, one of the most clear examples of that is, of course, the airport scene. This is a scene where we have, I think, a 12-year-old or 10-year-old Cole who watches himself die. And he watches the aged Cole, played by Bruce Willis, be shot. And this dream recurs throughout the film, and more and more details get filled in. Of course, some of the details that get filled in are colored and filled in incorrectly. So occasionally, the guy carrying the briefcase is Brad Pitt, and that's you know so that's we know that's what we're seeing with these flashbacks are his memory which is which is being colored by the by the new information he's gaining over the course of his journey but by the end we realize that he's effectively seen what we are now going to see at the end at the very end of the movie and this by the way i should just say 12 monkeys is a uh, is a, is inspired by a, a french film called la jeté which is a Basically, about a series of still images with narration, and the airport scene in La Jetée and the airport scene in um, in Twelve Monkeys are are very very close. A lot of the movie is quite different, but the the airport sequences are you know sh- almost even shot for shot the same. They they kept that uh, as a, as I think a an homage. But so yeah, so twelve year old Cole has watched his older self die, and so when his older self goes back to time travel. In a very real sense, there's nothing he can do except die. He will die, that is to say. Um, he, he, he will not change the fact that he is in that moment going to die. Now, what is interesting for Lewis is there's an, there's an interesting question about whether he can change that, You know, that the, the time-traveling self can change that fact, make it the case that he won't die, should we talk about that, Barry? I mean, that's an interesting wrinkle to Lewis's resolution of the grandfather paradox, is that no, he does right. believe in some sense you he can change it.
0: Right. I mean, one of the th- things to think about is that there's nothing special about the present for David Lewis. So as we're watching the film, the present keeps shifting yeah. for us as viewers of the film. So he, the present is... 2035 or whatever it was in the future and then the present for for cole is 1990 and then the present for cole is 96 and then it's back to 2035 and then the present is once again at the airport back in 1996 the way that david lewis thought about it is okay that just happens to be the present for you as a viewer or the present for cole right but what actually happened is the entire timeline after you saw 12 Monkeys and you were going to map out the entire story, that timeline is the world and is the thing that happened to Cole, that whole timeline, right? And, and so even though Cole was experiencing that timeline um, as different moments being the present— there's nothing special about him. Like, you know, once once we have the timeline, that's what happens in the film, and that's what happens in Cole's life, and that's what happens in the history of the world depicted. And given that that's true, that's what happens, you know, anything that's different that happens is just not the same film, and it's not the same story, and it's not Cole's life, right? Um, and so you can describe that as saying, well... He can't do anything but what he does in the film because that's what happens to him. And so all he gets to do is experience it as though it's the present. but really, it really had already happened to him. And so he's experiencing it as the present, but it's already happened. So in that sense, he can't change anything. um, and that's what Lewis says is true. So there's a sense of cant with where. You can't change the world. But that's true of all of us, right? Like, we are in the present, but the future is in some sense, like, whatever's true of the future is true <laughs> of the future. And whatever's true of the past is true of the past. And whatever's true of our universe is true of our universe, past, present, and future. Uh, And there is a sense of can't that we can't change it, right? But Lewis thinks, well, there's another sense of can or can't where you say you can change it, right? And And he just... He thinks that that word uh, means different things in different contexts, right? So this, so there's one sense in which um, the way Lewis thought about Kant is like, there clearly is a sense in which you can change the future in that there's another world in which the future is different. <laughs> and that's a sense of can. And then another sense of can or can't is just, um, you know, um, Every time I'm confronted with vanilla or chocolate ice cream, I choose chocolate. I love chocolate. I don't really like vanilla all that much. Um, I will never choose vanilla over chocolate. I just, I never have. And I don't think I ever will. I don't want to. Can I? Can I choose vanilla? The sense in which I can is just like, no one's forcing you. No one's got a gun to your head. And In that sense, you can, but I never will. Um, So that's the way that Lewis thought about it.
1: I think one of the questions that comes up for a lot of people when they start thinking about time travel, when they start thinking about foreknowledge, that is knowledge of the future and whether that impacts our ability to choose, is they think that they have an inclination that the sense in which we would be free if we are free at all is one that would be incompatible with the future already being determined, as it were, already being there, so to speak. Uh, we're just on a train waiting to meet it. They think, well, and that, if that were the case, there's you just can't uh, do anything else because you're on a train being piloted by someone else. Uh, but there's another sense of freedom or free will, which is sometimes called compatibilism, in which case you, your freedom is compatible with being railroaded on a train to a particular destination. Does my choice follow from or flow from the kind of person that I am? Or is it imposed on me via some external source? So you can think of the difference between, as Barry said, you know, somebody putting a gun to your head and then you, you say, okay, well, I guess I'm going to eat vanilla this time because the gun is to my head and I'm being told it's vanilla or the bullet. But if there's no gun to my head, then I choose chocolate because that's what I want. That's in line with my desires, the kind of person that I am and so on. And you might think, well, if you're comparing those two scenarios, then I'm free in the case where there's no gun to my head and I'm not free in the case where there's a gun to my head. But both of those scenarios are fully compatible with me being on a train, so to speak, railroaded towards whatever outcome was going to be in the future. And so that's the sense in which we still do, according to Lewis, have freedom, even in the circumstance that Cole finds himself. Because the circumstance Cole finds himself, as Barry points out, is no different than the circumstance we find ourselves for Lewis. It's just that he knows what's going to happen, whereas we don't know what's going to happen. But that difference in knowing is not, I mean, maybe it feels relevant, but for Lewis, it's not metaphysically relevant because the situation is the same for both of us. Um, our futures lie on a on a track, so to speak.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, I don't know if this is the right time to talk about this, but there's many other features of this movie that are thoroughly Lewisian about time travel, uh, not only about whether um, you can change the past, which you cannot, and it's explicitly said by Cole. I'm not here to change the past. We're just learning so that we can change the future. Um, But the other thing that happens in in this movie is that the actions of Cole in the past determines for the future what the mistakes that are made Yes, mm-hmm. by the future people in thinking that it's the army of the 12 monkeys who are responsible for the pandemic. Let's talk about this, yes. Right. This is an essential feature of the Lewisian story of time travel. Yep.
1: So I will just, can I, can I just preface this? So this is, I think what we're going to get into is the possibility of closed causal loops. Is this That's where right. we're? Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Go for it. <laughs>
0: right. So that I'll just I'll you you I'll I'll do the plot summary. You can start talking about it. Um, so so the so there's a few things where this happens. Number one, um, the the Brad Pitt character, the Goines character, gets the idea for um, the army of the twelve monkeys and the virus from Cole yeah. in 1990 mm-hmm. who had traveled back in the past in, with, in his own mind, a future where the Army of the Twelve Monkeys has released the deadly virus. Yep.
3: Maybe the human race deserves to be wiped out. Wiping out the human race? It's a great idea. It's great. But uh, more of a long-term thing. Um, first, we had to focus on more immediate goals. I didn't say a word about you-know-what.
0: Second thing, the reason why Cole believes that the Army of the Twelve Monkeys is responsible is two. Number one, he saw a message spray painted on the wall in the streets of Philadelphia, um, stating that it was the Army of the Twelve Monkeys that did it, or something to that. If I don't remember yeah, we the exact did it. message, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it turns out that it was Catherine who spray painted one of the messages, right? Mm-hmm. And Catherine. Did that because Cole went back in time and told Catherine that this was going to be <laughs> uh, true. And then Catherine, the, and the other reason Cole f- believes that the Army of the Twelve Monkeys did it is because he heard a voice message from the past saying that it was the Army of the Twelve Monkeys.
3: The Freedom for Animals Association on 2nd Avenue is the secret headquarters of the Army of the Twelve Monkeys. They are the ones who are going to do it. I can't do anymore. I have to go
0: now. Have a Merry Christmas! And that was Catherine leaving a voicemail precisely because she thought that Army of the Twelve Monkeys was responsible because Cole told her that after he traveled back in time. So he is the cause of the belief that the Army of the Twelve Monkeys released the virus and what causes him to think that is the stuff from the past that he caused.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Amazing. Yes, and one—I was just going to add. First of all, that's amazing, Barry, because those are—that's exactly right. And the—and one of the most puzzling things about the uh, about Lewisian time travel is that these sorts of closed causal loops are possible. I think some people think they're not possible because you can't identify the unique cause.
0: I mean, the interesting question for Lewis and people who argue with Lewis about this kind of thing is whether it is coherent to have a closed causal loop like this. So my question to the lay viewer who aren't philosophers who think about this is whether it makes sense or whether it seems paradoxical to think that you were caused to believe something from the past, which you went back in the past to, to cause. I mean, like the, the, example I think um, in other films is like your grandma gave you a locket um, and your grandma got the locket from you who traveled back in time to give your grandma the locket mm-hmm. and so the question is where did the locket come from the answer is there's no answer to that your grandma got the locket from you in the future and you in the future went back in time to give your grandma the locket and all Lewis says is yes that's right that's exactly how it works <laughs> <laughs> and and then the question is like when people watch these films does that Make sense to them, or does it sound like some kind of hidden contradiction?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit like creation ex nihilo, right? It feels like something from nothing, and that's what I think bothers people.
0: Mm -hmm. The way that David Lewis described it is, he just, you know, there's this idea, there's this idea of in all of science and philosophy that at, at you're eventually going to get to something called brute facts, yeah. facts that aren't explained, that don't, that facts that are just true that don't explain other facts. Mm. And if you're big into theology, you'll say that the brute fact is uh, God. But if you're not, you're going to say there's this brute fact that there was something in a big bang. And what you don't answer the question, where did the bang come from? And then he says that, well, the thing, the way to think about closed causal loop is that in a world where there's time travel, um, closed causal loops are brute facts. There's just this brute fact that there's uh, a locket that was not created uh, f- f- um, from something else, that a locket that the grandmother got was from the grandchild who then traveled back in time to give it to her. You know, and uh, as long as it's not contradictory, you can have, you know, anything be a brute fact.
1: The other thing I was going to mention was, um, I don't know if this is intentional, but the if everyone knows the poster of the movie, there's a there's a clock. it's a clock of monkeys, they're all kind of going around in a circle, but it's a closed causal loop of monkeys, right? There's twelve of them on a clock. They're all following the other, but there's no leader and there's no follower because they're all sort of following each other around. so it is a little bit like a closed causal loop um I mean it is ident you know it's representing a closed causal loop in a way. I don't know if the designers had that in mind, but I think that's a uh, a kind of an interesting nod to, the, to some of the things you're talking about.
3: He claimed that he had come from the future, that he was looking for a pure germ that would ultimately wipe mankind off the face of the earth starting in the year 1996. <laughs> Though injured, the young soldier disappeared from the hospital, no doubt trying to carry on his mission to warn others and substituting for the agony of war, a self-inflicted agony... We call the Cassandra complex. Cassandra, in Greek legend, you recall, was condemned to know the future, but to be disbelieved when she foretold it. Hence, the agony of foreknowledge combined with the impotence to do anything about it.
1: Can I just transition, maybe a little bit? So, thinking about brute facts and thinking about closed causal loops may have the tendency to per- to make a certain portion of our audience go a little crazy. And one of the interesting things about this movie is that. I feel like it explores the as I mentioned the human toll that time travel takes in terms of the psychological toll that it takes on the time traveler. And one of the most I think one of the most explicit and interesting themes of the movie is the relationship between the time traveler's foreknowledge and what it does to them in terms of their mental mental well-being. This is called out explicitly uh at one point Dr. Riley is giving a giving a speech about the Cassandra complex. And of course, this perfectly describes Cole. It ends up describing her to a certain extent. Actually, I think in a way, she becomes the true Cassandra because she's now going to know with certainty that the human race is going to get wiped out and she can't do anything about it.
2: And she's the one who's writing messages and, on walls and sending yeah. voicemails into the future. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, She's, she's parroting what Cole has told her, but those are her messages to the future. She's the Cassandra figure for them.
1: Yeah, I do think it's interesting to think about what it would be like as a time traveler. It's not just being destabilized in terms of what time it is, although everyone, that's the, always everyone in every time travel movie is like, Wait, what time is it? I What year is it? That's always the big thing. But I think they, that that is not that destabilizing. What would be, I think, incredibly destabilizing is knowing what's going to happen and having to confront the fact that you are effectively now I'm not effectively, I mean, you're a participant in both I guess what it is is you have to come to terms with the fact that you are now a participant in and also watching effectively a movie. You know like it's a weird position to be in and that you can cause things to happen, but whatever you've caused will have already been caused and how, how do you make sense of that um, and I, it, it basically starts to drive these I mean at, at least the, these people who have been sent back in the past are considered insane um, by the by the you know by the various people they who encounter them. but I think it starts to drive them insane. I think Cole desires at least to to be insane, because it would at least allow him to, rem, you know, remove some of this uh, this foreknowledge, and and he even says something. He says, "I want the future to be unknown. I want to become a whole person again," as if he's not a whole person with that knowledge. Which I found a I found that a really interesting quote
0: on this. Watching, I made a note, um, which I didn't notice the first time. Which I probably saw this. When it came out, probably, uh, which was, this is a film even at its beginning of epic, epic uh, gaslighting. I want to say something like that. Uh, maybe that's not the right word. The team of scientists in the future and the team of psychiatrists in the past clearly are made parallel, right? So they they're, they they they're seated the same way and they speak mm-hmm. the same way. Um, all of the vocabulary of of people volunteering when they're clearly being forced to do something, Um, the way that the scientists speak to him both before and after his particular time travel episodes, they are speaking with a level of certainty and confidence about things to which they don't have a right to be certain and confident about, you know, in terms of like what he did in the past and what he saw in the past and so forth. Um, And then the psychiatrist in the past that eventually the time travel makes it so that, you know, he knows in the beginning what the future is. And all of his interactions in the past have convinced him to doubt things that he already knew. Um, so that by the last moment, the last time he travels back, he thinks of reality as the delusion, <laughs> right? Um, so he got to a point where, yes, everybody in the beginning, everyone around him it believes he's delusional, but he knows the facts, and that's already straining enough. But by the end, reality he convinced himself is the delusion just because everybody has made it so difficult for him to know for sure when really he's the one who knew things in the past and things in the future all along. That, that was something I noticed big time. Like just the way that the other characters and their scientific certainty and so forth just carried themselves around and spoke to him.
2: Hello were sent back to make
1: some very important observations. You could have made a real contribution. To reclaim the planet. As well as reducing your sentence. The question question is, Cole, do you want another chance? I mean, I guess I wondered how much of it was motivated. So, I wondered how much he wanted to be insane so Mm -hmm. that he would avoid the, you know, avoid the future that he you know we're having to return to the future that he knows to be so horrible and everything yeah
2: he'd rather Um, be insane and live in this world and breathe this air than (laughs) um and yeah not know that five billion people die and not have like a that burden of that that's part of like he's part of that story and that he has a job to do
1: yeah
2: uh and helping to save those people um, whoever remain, right, in the future.
1: Right. And and what I thought was really interesting about that is that if that's right, it's it's a little bit of a f- reversal of how I would have normally thought of things. So I would have normally thought, usually in a movie, um, you mentioned uh, Beautiful Mind when we were talking earlier about David Lewis and, you know, just uh, as your model for doing the Hi-Fi Nation series. You know, the, the turn in Beautiful Mind, at least in the movie, uh, is oh my God, I'm insane. <laughs> and like all these people that I thought I was talking to are not real. They're just figments of my imagination. Mm-hmm. And it plays like it's this terrifying, destabilizing thing. And at least when I saw the movie in theaters, not knowing anything, I, you know, my, my stomach drops when that happens. It's, it's, I find it one of the most terrifying things to the realization that you are, you know, mentally ill. But in this movie...
2: A he would he would just
1: a relief, yeah, he would he rather like splashing be
2: splashing in a pond, he yeah. he like, would
1: <laughs> rather be wrong about everything that has happened, uh it, it, that, you know, all of his memories of the future, he would rather those all be wrong. and those are just figments of his imagination than go back to it. Um, and that's, I think, you know, it it reveals how how horrible that future is or was for him, I suppose, um, but also just. I don't know. I think it, I I wonder to what extent it does have to do with the the foreknowledge and and it may, maybe one way to 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 suss this out is to wonder whether, you know, if I knew everything that I was about to do, would I be able to you know, deal with that? Um and and I've thought a little bit about this, you know, in my life at various points thinking philosophically about things, wondering if you read you over know, open a book and you read it was the book of your life and it to- tells the entire story of your life and you you get to the part where you're reading the book and you, you know would you want to turn the page there's this feeling of fear because if you turn the page it's you just I don't know it just it feels completely destabilizing in a similar way that I almost wonder if that and enou- would be enough to to desire to be to to rather be insane and think I'm not really reading the book of my life I'm mm-hmm. I'm i'm imagining this whole thing
0: everything that was destabilizing about his life um coalesced in such a way that made him want to be insane and live in the past so number one he's incarcerated in the future sure number two when he's in the past he's got this foreknowledge of the disaster of the future when he's in the future he's only underground when he's in the Mm -hmm. past he could breathe the air as you as you mentioned um whether he's in the past or the future, and this is the gaslighting part that I noticed, everybody's contradicting him. Yeah. <laughs> so the social context of his life is just completely, so, so if everybody's contradicting you, past or future, why not accept other people's testimony about what's true at some point and live that way? And so that's where he is by, by the last time he time travels, right? Um, he's like, He's decided, I'm going to pull out my teeth, so that they can't take me back to the future. I'm going to live out my days here. I'm going to breathe this air. And I'm also going to decide that I am insane and I'm going to turn myself in. You know, like everything coalesced together to make him make that kind of decision. Um, And the only thing that I remember drew him out of it finally was his realization that his dream was... Memory and that this has got to happen, and at that point, he accepts that fate is determining that this is going to happen in the airport right that the, the foreknowledge now is is guided by the fact that it was in his history that he saw um, Riley and himself in the airport and that he was shot, and that's interesting, right because it's a it's a kind of acceptance of fate that that came after an entire film of you know trying to control it or trying to change it or trying to escape it
1: yeah, I like that reading. I like that reading a lot. another reading on it is that it's a kind of change from the nihilistic spirit that he adopts, which is i think you, the way you were describing it is is that he's he's you know he's sort of become he's gonna sort of, rejected all the external uh, measures of reality and now he's just going to say, I'm going to retreat solipsistically into my own view and I'm insane and that's that. Um, You could could also think of it like he gets the gun and then in that moment he has this feeling like he rejects that nihilism and he thinks, wait, maybe I can
0: make the (laughs) change. That's true. Maybe I can be the hero and Mm -hmm. save
1: the world and like, you know... (laughs) And then, of course, in so doing, of course, just completes the circle.
0: There's definitely room for that reading. And in terms of the, there were two unexplained or not fully explained elements of the plot in 12 Monkeys that I don't know what to make of, but may be consistent with these kinds of readings. And number one is the voice that calls him Bob. That's never explained.
2: What is going on with that? (laughs) I don't know.
0: That's right. I don't know either. Right? Yeah. It's interesting that the voice that calls him Bob is never explained in a movie that's pretty much consistent throughout mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. in its time travel story. Like, is it in his head? Is the person actually there? Is it the guy on the street? None of that. And then one that I thought was unexplained, but you can put two and two together is the scar-faced man who... Um, is a security officer and helps him while he's trying to escape in the hospital and then he's on the elevator at the airport Um, I don't know if you noticed this detail but I I, I, this time around when I saw him I was like oh he's another time traveler that's there to like help him along the way. But it's not explained explicitly.
1: Barry, which part is the, when he tries to escape the hospital, which I'm trying to remember the Scarface, where that guy shows up. I'm actually sure Yes, he's that.
0: on his way and he goes to, I think it's like an elevator. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's trying to escape. Um, he's eventually captured, but when he, he's trying to sneak by a security guard who's watching TV or something. Uh, and as he pushes the button or something or tries to get in the door, I don't remember what it was, the security guard looks up and says, gives him advice, like, mm-hmm. oh, something, the floor is closed or something to that effect. Mm. And I think you're right, Laura. I think it's a different person <laughs> after he- Yeah, it like switches, you know, it right? switches. That, that's right. right. And that man with the scar on his face appears on the escalator at the airport. Interesting. As mm. he's, and that's not explained either. Yeah, there's no, a lot, of, and we
2: do know people are popping back and forth because we see the scientist woman at the very end, right, sitting next to the man who's going to release the virus. Well, and, and Jose. So, yeah. Well,
1: yeah, 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 so, yeah. So Jose is the one; he's the guy who gives him the gun on the escalator. Oh no, the gotcha. scarf. Right. So there's the yeah. There's Jose who goes back. There's the prison guard who's the guy with the white hair, right? Who's kind sh- of shows up periodically. He's on the escalator. He's in the in the prison. Uh, or sorry, in the um, in the hospital, um, yeah, I wasn't sure if that was supposed to just be a hallucination. A little yeah. bit like we know that he he's
2: pretty drugged up in that moment too. Yes, that's right. Yeah. In the hospital, is, in the hospital, yeah.
1: we also know that Cole is somewhat unreliable in that he um, he hears the voice of the of the homeless guy,
2: the, the um, voice who calls him Bob. Bob, the yeah.
1: Bob voice guy. Yeah. Uh, in the bathroom. So he coming out of right. a stall and it turns out to be just some other some random guy. So <laughs> that's right. That's he right. we know there's something unreliable about his perception periodically. Um, yeah, but when you said scar, I thought, oh, I thought you were meaning um uh the, the his friend uh Jose uh, Jose. Right. Yeah, yeah yeah right yeah. oh that's
0: right I wouldn't mean Jose yeah Jose yeah, yeah. but Jose does does show up again. I was thinking the the those two unexplained Explainable and unexplained features of the film are interesting to read in the context of what we're trying to read this. Is it part of the madness? Is it part of the time travel? Is it uh, like what aspect is it? Is it because um, I believe the the bo- voice that calls him Bob is completely accurate. I believe everything he says is true. But I don't, but I I wasn't paying close enough attention at the time. Like, so is it a voice from the past or or the future? It's telling him things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think those things are false.
1: I mean, here's a read. Here's a read. So we know that the, all right, first of all, it would make sense. If you're sending people back, prisoners. So prisoners, people who you might think, you, you know, you don't, Necessarily want to trust letting them out of prison, right? And and letting them out of prison and then putting them in the past where they could just run away. Uh, you would expect that they would be tracking them, and we learned that they're tracking them through the teeth at some point, or at least we're, we're told. I mean, I don't know if we're that's actually accurate. I, I mean, unless uh, Barry, you're, I mean, yeah. I don't know how you want to read the teeth thing, but I mean, yeah. the teeth thing that is told to him by the Bob Voice Guy. But you might think that. They're not just sending, we all know that that, that Cole is not the only person being sent back. So there's a lot of people being sent back. Various other characters sort of say like, hey, you know, you're one of us. Rayleigh at one point is giving a a lecture where she is chalking up the event, you know, the inspiration for the Book of Revelations effectively to a time traveler. Uh, You you know, I mean, she doesn't realize this, but we, we can fill in the blanks. So we know there are a lot of other time travelers. But you might then think that, put those things together and you might think, well, anytime they send a prisoner back, maybe they're going to send two or three other effectively prison guards back to keep an eye on them or something. Um, so they have some, or they at least have some way of monitoring them um, while, they're, while they're, you know, in the past. And so that could explain why the prison guard guy is showing up periodically, uh, is, is that he really is there. And maybe Cole only notices them here and there. He's kind of keeping an eye on him. I don't know. He,
0: yeah.
2: No, I was just you, laughing because they're laugh. sending, sending everybody back to the wrong time. Then <laughs> 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 they like set yeah. like prison cards back to 1992. Whoops. I guess maybe they do it all at once. It also,
1: <laughs> the only thing that doesn't make sense on this interpretation though, is that if you're going to take the effort of sending back like four people, because three of them are watching the one guy here sending back, why don't just send back one reliable person? <laughs> it's <laughs> sending back a prisoner who needs three escorts because yeah. you're afraid they're going to run away. Yeah.
2: Anyway, one of the parts of the movie that I like that I love is, is um, the arc that Madeline Stowe's character, Catherine Rayleigh is going through alongside Cole. Cause we talked about how Cole, um, when he gets to the past is, you know, in the face of so many scientists, so many psychologists telling him that he's mentally ill, telling him that he's, got a you know divergent or that he's he's living in two realities and this is the real one and and that um his his visions of the future his present future are are just you know uh, delusions he becomes compelled by that and at the same time Dr. Riley Re- is losing her religion yeah. and psychology and yeah. becoming more and more compelled by his vision um and there are times where he seems completely convinced he is mentally ill and she is completely not convinced he is mentally ill completely convinced that he is in fact a time traveler that his future is real that there will be 5 billion people who die when he's like you know has has left that part behind um and i i just i like those sort that sort of swapping of the madness and and um and perspectives where they're they're both sort of compelled by the other one to the point where they've lost their ground and they no longer know what they believe in or no longer know what their reality is. Um, and they, there's a scene, uh, we actually we watched vertigo last night, be- inspired by the fact that they watched vertigo in the, in the movie. Um, right, they hide out a right. movie theater at one point. Um, and, and she yeah, has a wig
0: a, and it's an homage to vertigo. That's exactly. Right. Yeah.
2: Right. And, um, and there's a lot in vertigo that, that, um, that's in dialogue with this movie, I think. Once we watched the movie, I saw I saw a lot of connections there. But I think, too, that sort of that madness of intimacy. Um, Jimmy Stewart's character spends time with a woman who is maybe mentally ill. Maybe she's possessed by a woman from the past. And she's trying to figure out, you know, if she's crazy, if she's not crazy, if she's not crazy is in fact she is she possessed like that's horrific and its own sort of madness, but maybe not mentally ill madness. And he becomes mad (laughs) as a result um, of, of sort of trying to understand what's going on and spending time with this woman who is losing time and space. Um, and, you know, sort of going off into another reality in places. And I I like this idea of sort of a contagion of madness, and particularly uh, with, you know, an intimate relationships.
1: One thing I would add is that there's a kind of really weird and inexplicable connection between the two characters. So Rayleigh... So I have a hypothesis about why this is, Mm -hmm. but I think that there's... And I think there's actually a big theme in La Jete, is that the characters keep finding each other across time. They keep connecting across time, even in sort of inexplicable, for inexplicable reasons. But the first time Rayleigh sees Cole, she says, have I seen you before? She immediately has this like feeling of deja vu. Now, I think the only explanation, at least the movie offers us for this, is that she's read that book that has the picture of Cole in it from 19 from sorry, world war one. Yeah. That's right. uh, where he's, he's sort of reaching out for his friend. Um, but what I think is interesting is that that immediately then kind of cues in her. She's so that all those scenes of her right after she's met him, where now the like, uh, the staff is interviewing him at the hospital and they're all seated up front. And then she's off to the side. She's mm-hmm. pensive. She's, she's, She's confused. She's, she's not, she's distant. She's, she's like, her mind is somewhere else. She's ruminating on, like, where have I seen? She, she keeps, it feels like she keeps thinking, where am I, where have I seen this guy? Is this guy like, what's going on? Have I been dreaming of this guy? What's happening here? Is this person important in my life?
2: Yeah. And um, she's already sort of willing to go along with his narrative. There's yeah. you know, he wants to call the voicemail number. And yeah, the row of scientists them. are like, Pfft. You know, and she's like, "Give him a phone." You know, she's kind of like, I mean, there's more. She's showing a lot more kindness and empathy towards him than all the other. She's sci- curious, but though. she's curious. She's curious yeah, about exactly. him in a
1: way that they're not, yeah. and I think that that. And then, of course, when he eventually kidnaps her, she's terrified, but also a little excited about it because I think she's she's finally. She's like, "Wait, oh, this guy has come back into my life six years later," and. She's obviously incredibly scared. He's a powerful man who, you know, Bruce Willis a big guy. She's not a, she's like a small woman, right? Um, we we know how this could play out. But she also is intrigued because she wants, she's so curious about what he could, uh, you know, what what this could mean for her. And I think that there is this sort of, their love story is this other really fun element to this movie and that it plays out in a really, I feel like it plays that in a genuine way, but also in a way that is so non-standard. It's just such a weird version of a love story. Um, it has ele- it's somewhat icky elements. Like, yes, he does kidnap her, but, um, but at the same time, he is, I think he is, you know, he's very gentle with her. Mr. Coles. He used to
3: call me James. You prefer that? James, uh... You don't really have a gun. Oh, yeah. turn, can you turn this up? Yeah. Can you make this louder? I found
0: my thrill on oh, Blueberry hill. on oh, Blueberry
1: hill. You know, one other aspect of that that is interesting and I guess I think ties to another theme of the movie is the imposition of labor on another person um basically taking another person hostage or prisoner right. and using them um that that happens at least 3 times in the film so uh, cole is volunteered by the by the prison guards to do this job he doesn't have any choice in the matter um and that seems to be commonplace the animals that are being tested that Jeffrey Goins is is upset about are of course you know they don't they're not being asked and <laughs> they're not signing any waivers or compensated to do this to do this kind of to lab testing and then also um, Cole himself takes Rayleigh hostage in order to actually what is the can we why why does he do this
2: he can't drive
1: he can't drive but why does he need her <laughs> there and I'm so I'm trying to think about why that would be. Why does he need her to drive to Philadelphia? He could take any, he could call an Uber.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he sees a flyer for her talk. Yeah. Um, I mean, I
1: Is it just because he's interested in her?
2: Yeah, I think he just like they like you said, like there's something sort of like otherworldly cosmic happening or mm-hmm. the relationship, and he feels like he needs he's stuck, right? He's been living on the street. Nobody believes him. Everybody either. So she's,
1: she's the only person. She's the only person, who person who I think he's
2: gotten like an inkling of like I yeah. can convince that her I can she can help me and will help me to get what I need, which okay. is to collect. But collect either way, evidence. it's
1: done via force, right? Yes. He forces her. Yes. Um, it's not these animal testing and the the volunteering of prisoners and so on is not portrayed in an incredibly positive light, <laughs> and so um, I do think it's telling that Cole. By that point where he's taken the turn, he's being led around by her by the in the last half of the movie. She's the one saying, Okay, we gotta put the mustache on you, here's the wig. Right. He's
2: trying to give himself up. He's trying to she... give
1: himself up. And she <laughs> it's interesting that it's really full it's really flipped kind of full circle, and he's allowing himself to be led in you know by her. To be as volunteered a po- again. Yeah. Well, no, I mean he's <laughs> he's he's sort of he's trusting her, right? Mm-hmm. And I think he's trusting her to 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 make these choices. And Um, Rather than, um, you know, trying to force her to believe whatever it is he believes. James!
3: James! James. There's a policeman over there. Pretend you don't know me. No, I want to turn myself in. Where is he? James! Where is he? Down! No, no, it's Look. okay. I'm, I'm not crazy no. I mean, I am. No. I'm mentally divergent. I know that but I, I want you to help me. I want to get better. I want to get better. James.
1: Let's get out of here. So, one other thing we wanted to mention was that Laura, Laura noted this when we were watching this time. We, there's two weird, very weird pieces of foreshadowing in this movie. Uh, not foreshadowing. I don't know if what you call it, but there. You think
2: that Terry Gilliam is a time traveler? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's two. And very... he's, he's seeding some stuff in this movie. There's
1: two very interesting, let's say, <laughs> uh, Pete quotes which parallel things that happen to the characters saying the quotes to the p- to the actors in
2: the year 1999
1: saying the quotes in later times. <laughs> so at one point. Bruce Willis says, all I see are dead people. Come on. That's amazing.
0: <laughs>
2: That's
1: amazing. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Terry Gilliam is a time traveler.
2: That's what I'm saying.
1: The other thing is the, the, the Brad Pitt speech.
3: There's the television. It's all right there. All right there. Look, listen, Neil, pray. Commercials. We're not productive anymore. We need to make things anymore. It's all automated. What are we for then? We're consumers, Ah, okay, okay, buy a lot of stuff. You're a good citizen. But if you don't buy a lot of stuff, if you don't, what are you then? I ask you, what? Mentally ill. Back, Jim, back. If you don't buy things, toilet paper, new cars, computerized blunders, electrically operated sexual devices, serial systems with brain implanted headphones, screwdrivers, miniature built in radar devices, voice activated computers. Take it easy, Jeffrey. Be
0: calm.
1: Now here's his Fight Club speech.
3: Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. And we're very, very
1: pissed off. in the 90s, there's this growing dissatisfaction, especially among Gen X. There's a dissatisfaction with, like, well, we got a lot of the stuff. We reached a certain degree of um, satisfaction with our material satisfaction with our lives. And now we're starting to wonder, like, what else is there in life? And that was a theme that kind of reaches its apex in the 90s in 1999. There's, like, you know, entire books written about this thing. Um, But What's interesting to me is why Brad Pitt as the spokesperson of this. <laughs> that's I think what's really interesting because he he he's an incra- He obviously is the ro- the movie god rock star. So to have him say the line is kind of funny and ironic, I guess. <laughs> that
2: will never be movie stars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but like,
1: and then in this movie, he sort of plays it against type a little bit in that he's this beautiful man who's dressed down, so to speak, with the weird lazy eye thing, and he's. He's very manic, but maybe having someone as beautiful as Brad Pitt do that is like helpful because it helps the message be go down a little bit smoother. Mm -hmm. because It's coming from someone who's so incredibly charismatic, but I do think it's interesting that Terry Gilliam and um, David Fincher, you know, saw fit to put these words in Brad Pitt's mouth. So uh yeah, I don't I think it's just it's a theme that was swirling around in popular culture right, at the time. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's weird that Terry Gilliam, you know, felt like he needed to time travel to nineteen ninety nine and then bring that back.
1: <laughs> He's like, Brad, I gotta you're gonna be you're gonna be huge in ninety-nine, but you gotta be in my movie first.
2: <laughs> He's like, I'm not letting you have a six pack in my movie though. <laughs> That's right. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: We're gonna We're going to put all kinds of gowns and things on you. He
2: still looks handsome. There's no, there's no hiding it. (laughs) (laughs) But the all
1: I see are dead people. That one I can't explain. That's a wild. There's
0: no explanation. That was not a common nineties theme. Yeah. (laughs) It's just a brute fact of a closed causal loop.
1: Uh, Barry, do you, do you like Terry Gilliam movies?
0: Yes. Well, I love 12 monkeys. What else are we talking about? Well,
1: (laughs) one of the things... Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's common in Terry Gilliam movies is, like, a very outlandish and odd-looking set design. And there's a lot of detail in the set. So his most... I think his most famous movie is Brazil. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, he did The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Time Bandits. Uh, I guess probably his most famous movies are the Monty Python ones. So he did Holy Grail and um, Meaning of Life. So... Um, as a meaning, yeah, meaning of life or life of Brian, one of the two, anyway. So he, you know, which all I mean, those are very low budget, but but I think when you get to Brazil, you really do sense this guy has a real practical desire for these wild sets. And I think that really comes out in in 12 Monkeys as well, where you have just you know, everything is gross and grimy. There's like a you know, that the hospital there where they keep uh Jeffrey Goins and 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 Cole every you know when they when he escapes up to the 6th floor or whatever it's it looks like a hellscape like it looks yeah. like a really run down garbage place right it looks right. terrible yeah, um,
0: and philadelphia the yeah. theater and the streets outside of the 12 monkeys the, yeah absolutely and the prison <laughs> the prison
1: yeah. is amazing yeah. yeah so apparently they they just went and so, so the prison and stuff was all shot in like an abandoned factory so they just found like abandoned factories and then they kind of gussied them up a little bit because they didn't have a very big budget for this movie. So then they just did all that and kept a lot of the, you know, effectively shooting on location in all these places, which was, I think, really, really smart. Um, but yeah, one of the details in the in the movie that is, um, I think, kind of kind of interesting, but I think this will reveal a little bit about Terry Gilliam, um, is uh, So there's a scene where Bruce Willis is naked, and he's in, the, um, he's in the future, and he's, I guess, drawing his blood. So he's kind of sitting in a chair with his leg crossed, and he's drawing his blood. Now, it's a wide shot. And in the shot, there's Bruce Willis on the left, and on the right, there's a, you know, some... Plastic sheet, but behind the plastic sheet, you see a silhouetted hamster in a wheel, just kind of spinning around. And it's a small detail, but apparently Gilliam was obsessed with this hamster. And the shot wasn't going well. He needed the hamster to be spinning in the wheel, and it wasn't happening. And this was like a huge endeavor. And this became known as the hamster factor. And they made a documentary about 12 monkeys, and the title of the documentary was The Hamster Factor. Gilliam, the way he describes it in that is he's he just says, ah, you know, this is why people think I'm crazy. We have a shot with Bruce Willis, and he's got no clothes on, and I'm interested in the hamster in the corner. But I actually thought that there was something interesting about the hamster. He doesn't say why the hamster is important, besides that it's a detail that he's interested in. But I actually thought it was kind of cool that the hamster, that you have this idea of a hamster and a wheel, because, of course, what's a hamster and a wheel is not going anywhere, there's the kind of futility to his actions, which is something that ties into the theme that we've been we've been talking about about the futility of a time traveler and being unable to change anything uh, in the in the block universe. Um, but there's also a kind of futility also that might drive madness in the case of Goins, Right, he's he's basically like all I look around and I just see a bunch of capitalist drones, right? I just see a bunch of consumerists, and I can't really do anything to change that. I want to do this activism, but is that really gonna, you know, is that really gonna do anything? Is that gonna change? Is it gonna save the animals? We're gonna release them, they're gonna go right back in. There's a the kind of futility that's I think felt by a lot of activists, political activists in particular, of thinking like, we could do as much consciousness raising as we want, but in the end of the day, the mechanisms that keep these systems in place are incredibly difficult. We are a little bit like, you know, raging, you know, campster wheel, and there's a kind of felt futility and deflation that I think often happens there. And so I think in a way, and then of course you also have Rayleigh, I'm just trying to tie this to all three characters, who's now going to be the Cassandra of the film, right? There is, all three of the characters are like hamsters trapped in wheels. They're just like raging, unable to move to, to make and to do any change uh, and or to institute any lasting change. And there's like, I don't know, there's this like real frustration there. And so maybe the hamster is important.
0: Yeah, it's got, it's got to be. It's got to be, just to instill that kind of reading. But interestingly, you know, the person who has the most agency is uh, the guy who actually releases the virus. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right?
0: like, he, like that's, the, that's the guy who uh, is in complete control yeah. and that nobody else can stop. <laughs> wow, well, that
3: guy. man.
2: like his red hair and his ponytail. <laughs> his styling is amazing.
1: All right, Barry. I want to close on this thought. Uh, I want to just ask you. So, we gave you a list of time travel movies, and we were kind of we were kind of coordinating around them. But if we hadn't done Twelve Monkeys, was there any other time travel movies you would recommend for people listening that want to, you know, think about time travel, think about the philosophy of time travel? What other time travel movies kind of are fun for you in that regard?
0: Oh, I love time travel movies. The first Terminator and 12 Monkeys are the quintessentially Lewisian time travel movies, the ones that display David Lewis's theory of time and time travel. And they're, according to him, the only views that are coherent about time (laughs) travel movies. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But the ones that are most thought provoking are not Lewisian, right? Um, And I'm just going to name one uh, Looper. Looper, I thought another Bruce Willis movie, yeah. about time travel, what is um is the one that's most non-Willisian, um. But yeah, I keep thinking about that movie. I don't know why. Like after <laughs> all these years, I think I think of Looper.
1: How many times have you seen it?
0: I've only seen it once.
1: Yeah, me too. I kind of want to go back and revisit Looper because I, it wasn't as taken by it the first time. But yeah, I I feel like it's a Ryan Johnson flick. It's like. A,
2: Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah. I feel like people got distracted by the like Jason Gordon Levitt doing a Bruce Willis mm. bit of it, right? But <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, sure. I feel sure. like that was like the like the narrative around yeah. it, but we should we should go revisit it.
1: But that's a movie where there is there is change like the time traveler is in in you know changing things, right?
0: Yeah, I mean yeah. like spoiler alert. Um Jason Gordon Levitt in the end shoots himself and then poof his future self disappear- hmm.
2: disappears. Disappears.
0: The <laughs> least Lewisian thing that could possibly happen, <laughs> which is just like that um, is that
1: even feels like it could ma- not make any sense because even the kinds of models of time travel where you can change the past, you don't go out of existence. You just continue on because another branch,
2: or yeah, yeah. like
1: you've effectively you know changed. The, yeah, you 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 know you think about the we talked about the growing block models of time travel. So there you just you just exist, but your um, you know you're you won't have any past in the in the in the 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 block that you currently exist
0: on, mm-hmm. oh, but you know, so many i I just I watched all three back to the futures with my oh nice with my child when she was seven or eight, I think, and she enjoyed them very much. um my gosh, so many I mean, I've just I just finished with her all of the MCU film and right now we're starting on Loki um okay but Netflix is dark if you haven't seen it. I mean, are, every philosopher I know or people philosophically inclined think that that series is incredible. And i mm. and I, thinking back on it. It starts out slow, but I, I think just in terms of theme, uh, metaphysical themes about time travel, Netflix is dark, I think, has all of them. Have you have either of you seen them? No, we haven't
1: seen it, no. Mm-hmm. Is, how many seasons are there?
0: I believe there are two. Or, it's not that Okay, it's not, it's not, not that much.
1: Long. Okay, yeah.
0: Yeah, but Dark is it's German, right? So it's in it's in German. And uh it starts off kind of David Lynchian small town uh drama CD Underbelly. And he's, th- there's not nothing in the first, I don't know, three or four or five episodes that that inclines you to think that we're talking about an epic time travel uh Science fiction thing. It just seems like it's as you know, it's about small town Germany, and then all of a sudden there's this turn, and then you just never look back, and you're just trying to figure out whether it's you're trying to figure out whether it's Lewisian or if it's some other theory of time. Like they don't even it's not even clear until the very end what they're operating on, mm. and for all, all along, um, it it is Lewisian, and then you realize oh no we're talking about possible worlds oh no we're we're back now we have cross cross world mixing and so on interesting um so i would say that i would say dark
1: that's cool that maybe that might be a pitch to me to start watching tv again because i haven't watched a tv show since the pandemic started but um (laughs) you know that reminds me a little bit of deja vu (laughs) have you seen deja vu no so after we we gave the, I gave the list, I was like, we got to check out Deja Vu. He's on the time travel list. Deja Vu rules.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. Deja
1: Vu straight up rules. And Deja Vu is <laughs> another one of those where the plot tension is built around what theory of time travel is true, in a way. I mean, it's not explicit, but like every all everything turns on that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of cool. I don't know. That yeah. was, really, was a really great movie. It's a great looking movie, too, because it's like, you know, sh- early aughts shot on film. It's Tony Scott, kind of at the height of his powers. Yeah, uh, Denzel Washington's great movie.
2: Harry Potter three, right? Uh, Prisoner of, of Azkaban might have been like one of my early introductions, yeah, to time travel and its paradoxes from when I read it as a yeah, kid. And
1: it's a Lewisian time travel.
2: It movie, is, so. yes, it's a close yeah. cl- close causal loop. So, yeah, I um, I think that was the first time I really came across that as a as a kid when I read Prisoner of Azkaban when I was like twelve. And I thought it was amazing and really cool. And um, the Quran movie is the best of all of those. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm like having a hot take to say that. Um, so I like that movie, you know, for its time travel elements, if not for the other parts of it. And uh, I was also thinking, since you mentioned TV shows, which I hadn't been thinking about, I want to go back to Lost one day and revisit. Right, <laughs> Lost.
0: fully Louisiana, also absolutely.
2: Is it? Yes, it I, is. Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Okay, I'm a, I'm fully amazed.
0: I, yeah, I know lost. Well,
2: (laughs) okay. Cause I, I was, I always got the impression that like the writers did not know what was going to happen in the next episode or in the next, uh, you know, they didn't necessarily have a plan. So I'm, I'm surprised that it's coherent, but that's awesome. Um, if so, but yeah, I mean, that's like, there is a part of the island that is in a different time. (laughs)
0: Yeah. <laughs> Lost is not coherent but Lost's time travel story is coherent in, okay. in a Lewisian okay. <laughs> sense. But Lost itself is not. No. <laughs> coherent.
2: I mean there's smoke monsters yeah. and all kinds yeah. of things but I right. it's so much fun and it's so crazy. I remember I didn't watch it when I was when it was on and I remember just like feeling like there was like this weird cult around it and I'd be irritated because if I walked in while somebody was watching Lost I'd be like why do they have to type in the code and they would just look at me like do you have forty five minutes for me to explain this shit? <laughs> like, don't come in here on season three and ask questions. Like, no, get out. Right. And right. and then I watched it all at once, and it's uh it's bonkers and it's riveting. And I I should go back to it. I haven't. I watched it. I binged it by myself while you were on the market and uh, you know <laughs> in a in a deep hole of stress. <laughs> um and uh, yeah, I should I should go back and revisit the
0: time travel elements of Lost.
1: Okay. There you have it. So uh, thanks so much, Barry, for joining us.
0: Well, great to be here. And if ever, all of you can't get enough metaphysics and David Lewis and time travel, listen to the four-part series, The Man of Many Worlds at Hi Fi Nation.
1: Highly recommend it. And so HiFi Nation is the podcast uh, available everywhere. Where else can people find you if they want to, you know, get in touch with you on Twitter or the web?
0: Just go to HiFiNation.org. Um, I'm on Twitter at HiFiNation and Facebook HiFiNation. If you put that up, uh, type that in, you'll, you'll be able to find me easily.
1: Check out Barry. And also, Barry, a lover of film. And we were so glad to have you. We are at Cow's Pod on Twitter. You can find us on the web at Cowspod.wordpress.com. And next week, we are going to do our, the first of our two Christmas movies. We're going to be doing Eyes Wide Shut with Carly Severn so tune in for the, that won't be next week it'll be in two weeks uh, but tune in for that <laughs>